All right, good evening. We are continuing our study. We've got two more weeks on angels tonight, next week, and then uh, we will have a quarterly singing. And then I'm very excited about our spring series that starts in April. Hope you're all doing well tonight. We're going to talk about the angels' relationship to us tonight. Last week we talked about the angels' relationship to Christ. And uh, tonight we're just going to look at how they, how the scriptures say they relate to us. I won't be able to answer all your questions on that. I, there, there's just some mysteries surrounding this subject. As with pretty much every subject we've talked about regarding angels. But there is a lot of exciting stuff to look at. So... Getting started, I want to start with a couple introductory passages to this subject. The first being a familiar one to us. We've talked about this almost every week. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. And here's how that reads. It's a question, a rhetorical question, that we should understand the answer. Are they not all, speaking of angels, ministering spirits? What does the word ministering mean? means that they serve, right? Servant spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And that would be you and me, those who believe in Christ and follow his teachings. So the angels are sent out as ministering spirits. I didn't get to go to Hebrews last week. We just ran out of time. But Hebrews chapters 1 and 2 are a comparison... Uh, between Christ and the angels. And of course, the point is that Christ is superior to the angels. And um, uh, he gives evidence from the Psalms, which call upon the angels to worship the Son. And uh, it shows that Jesus is called the Son of God, whereas the angels are never called that. This is in that context. They're, they're not the Son of God. They're not king. They're not worshipped. They're ministering spirits sent out to serve. They're servants. Um, but what's really interesting in mentioning that, he says they're servants of you and me. And of course, we all want to know how. And uh, we'll look into the scriptures for that. But first, another introductory verse. And this is the one quoted by Satan in the wilderness to Christ when he tempted Christ... We're going to put it into the proper context, Psalm 91, 11, and 12. He will command his angels. Now, the he here is God. God will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, of course, um, you know, there is a, a messianic application to this, and uh, it can and does refer to Jesus, but there's also an application to us as well, especially when you tie it in with Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. They're ministering spirits sent out to serve. They uh, are at God's command on our behalf. But I want you to notice very carefully, it is God's will that commands them. Okay, this is... One point that we need to keep before us throughout this whole lesson. They're not subject to our will. They're subject to God's will on our behalf. So he's the one who's commanding them. He's the one who is charging them to protect us. 
Okay, so with that introduction in mind, we're going to go through what the Bible says they do for us. And the first point I want to go to starts with the very first mention of an angel in the Bible, Genesis 16. And it has to do with compassion. Compassion, that, that's the first point. That's the one, I messed this slide up, I should have put a heading of compassion on it so you know we're, we're covering that. But the, the next two verses, passages, have to do with compassion. And as I said, this is the first time an angel is mentioned in the Bible, Genesis chapter 16. And both of these examples on compassion come from the story of Hagar, the, the uh, maidservant of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And you recall that Sarah and Abraham were having trouble having children. And even though God promised Abraham a child through Sarah, they became impatient. And Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to have a child for her, which she did. Uh, Ishmael was born. Uh, but before that, you have this, um, this scene where she conceives and she looked on Sarah with contempt and Sarah got very angry and dealt harshly with her, and she fled out into the wilderness. So look at Genesis 16, verse 7. It says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. So he reassures her of several things. Uh, this is the angel of the Lord, that character we spent a whole class period on. Some theorized to be Jesus before he was incarnate, before he was born a human. Uh, it, that's a possibility. The main thing to keep in mind about the angel of the Lord is that he speaks as Yahweh, and so he is God, at least in this case and in several others. And so he tells her to return to her mistress, suggesting that she's going to be safe, she's going to be protected. He promises to multiply her offspring into a great nation. He reveals to her that the Lord has noted her affliction, has heard her, and is responsive to it. And then finally, he foretells the birth of her son Ishmael. The name Ishmael, by the way, means God hears. So you see the compassion there on someone who is not a major character in Scripture. Uh, she is a handmaiden, basically a slave in Abraham's household. Of course, she's very important because she gave birth to a nation, the, the nation that came through her son Ishmael. But she is very touched by this, so impressed, she says in verse 13, You are a God of seeing. Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. So through this angel, God was looking after Hagar, showing her compassion. And he has to do it again in chapter 21. A similar incident comes up. Only this time, instead of the problem being between the two women, it's between the two sons. Isaac has just been born. And, of course, Sarah is very proud of her baby boy. And Ishmael is mocking him in some way. I don't know the age difference here, but Ishmael is picking at Isaac. And that made Mama mad. So she went and told Abraham to take care of it and banish Hagar. Send her away. And uh, it's, the text seems to suggest Abraham hated to do it, but... Um, 
he was told to listen to his wife and he sent her away with a skin of water. She ran out of water and uh, she puts Ishmael under a bush and then goes the distance of a bow shot so she doesn't have to watch him die. And apparently he's crying out loud and she's crying out loud because it says the Lord heard the boy. And uh, he responds. And uh, you see that again through an angel. Uh, where, where is it? Genesis 21, verse 17. God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven. Now this time it's not the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh. It's the angel of God. So maybe there's a difference here. Maybe not. But he called to Hagar from heaven and said to her. And again, this, there's a difference here because he's calling from heaven. And in the other example, he was present with her in person. Uh, he says, fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. And then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And so once again, God shows compassion on this woman, uh, despite the fact that she'd been an outcast from uh, Abraham's family. Uh, there are other examples of God's compassion shown through angels to human beings. Look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. This is after Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And uh, of course he won that contest, but Jezebel sought his life and for some reason that just really hit him hard. He fell into a deep depression and longed to die. And so uh, in 1 Kings 19, after he gets into this condition, uh, verse 5 says, He lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time. And touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank. And this was a really highly high caloric meal or something because he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Something supernatural was going on here, right? And again, the character is the angel of the Lord who is a special, unique individual uh, again, part of the Godhead because he speaks as Yahweh in other passages of Scripture. And so uh, you see here the great compassion. And these are similar to scenes we saw last week with regard to Jesus. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. He was famished. He was with the wild beasts. And the angels appeared and ministered to him. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying so fervently that blood, uh, sweat fell from his head like great drops of blood. And the angels came and strengthened him, Luke 22. And you see that kind of compassion with regard to God's servants, uh, just normal human beings, even slaves like Hagar and outcasts like Elijah. So compassion. Now, let's go to the second thing they do on our behalf. And this is what everybody's been wanting to hear about. We're going to talk about protection. What does the Bible say about the protection that angels give 
to us, to those who are to inherit salvation. Uh, what does it say about guardian angels? That's the key term, right? Everybody wants to know. Are guardian angels real? And I guess we need a definition of terms. When we usually talk about guardian angels, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, we're talking about an angel assigned to an individual who that entire individual's life watches over that person, like Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life. You know, somebody who's been assigned this person, and he's going to look out for that person and make sure he doesn't take any wrong steps and guide him along the way and get in the way of a car that's about to hit him. And, and the problem I have with the idea of guardian angels is a lot of innocent people get hurt. So it doesn't hold up, right? If there's a guardian angel for every person and their role is to keep that person from harm, why do so many good people get hurt? But there may be another sense in which there are guardian angels. I, I like to use the term protection to get us away from the, the cliche of a guardian angel. Uh, now, where did the guardian angel idea come from? Well, it goes way back into the intertestamental period, maybe before that, because there seems to be some kind of belief among the Jewish people in guardian angels uh, when Christ comes into the world. I found this passage from the book of Tobit, which is a non-inspired intertestamental document. And uh, in this book, uh, Tobit, the main character, and his wife send their son on a journey. And listen to what he says to his son. Do not worry. Our child will leave in good health and return to us in good health. Your eye, he's talking to his wife, rather. Your eyes will see him on the day when he returns to you in good health. Say no more. Do not fear for them, my sister, for a good angel will accompany him. His journey will be successful, and he will come back in good health. That sounds like the modern idea of a guardian angel. A good angel will accompany him. Uh, turn over to Acts chapter 12. We'll, we'll come back to this on another point, but here I just want to touch on the superstitions of the people of Jesus' day. Uh, James, the apostle, has been killed by Herod when he saw that that pleased the Jews. He imprisoned Peter, intending to do the same thing to Peter. But an angel frees Peter from prison. Now, we'll come back to the real angel in a moment. But I want to talk about what happens when Peter goes to the house of Mary, where the disciples are praying for him. They're having an all-night vigil, praying for Peter, and God answers their prayer. Peter appears, a little servant girl named Rhoda comes to the door when he knocks at the door, and she recognizes his voice, and she's so excited she forgets herself and doesn't open the door for Peter. She runs to tell everybody that Peter is free, and he's outside the door. And look at what they say. Before they believe it's Peter... They have another idea. They said to her, verse 15 of Acts 12, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, so it wasn't just one person, and it wasn't just one time, they kept saying, it is his angel. Now there's a couple things that could have meant, one being his ghost, 
because they also had this idea that dead people became spirits, and sometimes they would call those spirits angels. But more than likely, they were talking about the concept of a guardian angel, his angel. He has an individual, personal angel. Now, that's not scripture authority. That's just a mistaken idea because they were wrong. It wasn't his angel. It was actually Peter out there. But it shows you their mindset. But what did the scriptures say about the protection that angels give us? We'll go back to a couple of terms that we studied early on. You remember when we were talking about Old Testament terminology for angels. We talked about this term found only in Daniel and only in Daniel chapter 4, the term watchers. And uh, that term connotes a guardian role and a surveillance role. They're watchers. They keep their eyes on God's people. Also, the term seraphim, very rare. I think you only find it in Isaiah chapter 6. But in the etymology of the term seraphim, you can trace it back to a Hebrew word that uh, means serpent, which in turn was drawn from an Egyptian throne guardian terminology. All that to say that the idea of guards is packed into these terms. And you go along with that and look at what the cherubim do, and they seem to be guarding God's space. In Genesis 3, he posts cherubim at Eden to keep people from coming in. The mercy seat was guarded by images of cherubim. So you can't deny that they have some guardian role, protective role, as it concerns God's space, and and also as it concerns us. Now, with that in mind, let's look at uh, another passage of Scripture, Psalm 34, verse 7. Now, again, I'll point out the distinction. This is the angel of the Lord. So it could be just speaking of God, and we, we know that God is a protector. Here's what it says. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So you have the the imagery of you being at the center of a camp. And if you think about the Israelites' camp, they would put the tabernacle in the middle, and then the Levites, and then the tribes would surround it. And they would do that to protect the most precious thing, the tabernacle in the middle of the camp. When Jacob was um, afraid of his brother Esau, he put his wives and his children in the middle of his people to protect them. I mean, that's just common sense. So in this passage, it says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. That's a protective position, right? Now, we always try to go to something a little strange, so let's go to Zechariah. I bet it's been a while since you've studied this passage. Zechariah chapter 1. It's in the Old Testament, by the way. Near the back. Zechariah, uh, he alongside Haggai prophesied in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. No, I'm sorry, during the days of Zerubbabel when they were stalled out on building the temple, rebuilding it. And along with Haggai, Zechariah encouraged the people to start building the temple again. 
at the heart of his prophecy, in the first six chapters of his prophecy, you have eight visions that he had all in one night. Now, maybe you've woken up and said, man, I had some crazy dreams. Have you had eight vivid dreams that you remember? Uh, Zechariah had a night like that. And these, of course, were meaningful visions. They're not really called dreams. And there's a question as to really whether he was asleep or whether he was receiving these uh, awake. But they were obviously inspired by God. And in one of them, you have some information about angels that appears to put them in a guardian role. So I'm going to start reading the first vision, Zechariah chapter 1, verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shebat, in this second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night... And behold, a man riding on a red horse. Okay, that's, if you're putting together a cast of characters, that's number one. A man riding on a red horse. And it gets confusing, so keep up with it. He was standing, the man on the red horse, was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen. I think glen is ravine in some translations. And probably a better translation because it seems to signify the lowly position of Israel at this point. They're down in a low, low point, in a valley. So he's standing among these myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red sorrel, that's like a reddish-brown color, and white horses. Now, a lot of times the horses stand for, especially in the different colors they stand for, things that happen on earth, like in the book of Revelation, a red horse is war. A black horse is, is famine. White horse is victory. I don't know if you can go that far here, but maybe they stand for something. I don't know what sorrel would mean. But anyway, uh, verse 9. Then I said, so Zechariah, if you're making a cast of characters, he's, he's the second one. What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. There's a third character. I don't lose track. You've got the man on the red horse by the myrtle trees in the glen. You've got Zechariah. And then you've got the angel talking to Zechariah. And then verse 10. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Now a lot happened there in what I just read. For one thing, it seems if you're just reading this at face value, the horses are answering back. Probably what is intended is that there were men on the other horses as well. Just like the man was on the red horse. And these men appear to be angels, okay? Also, you might notice that the, the man by the myrtle tree who's riding the red horse is identified as the angel of the Lord. So that's interesting. And uh, he identifies them as those who patrolled the earth and, they, and the earth remained at rest. Now, this was disturbing to Zechariah and to the Jewish people because they were looking for a shakeup among the nations. 
If you want to jot down Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, you can go back and look at that later in connection with this. And that shakeup was going to restore the Jews back to the city of Jerusalem so that they could rebuild their city. Remember, this is during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so they didn't want to hear that the earth was at rest because they know that in the unrest, that's when the Jews' restoration would occur. And uh, so verse 12 says, The angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? The captivity lasted 70 years. And he answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. And, and there's more there, but I'll stop there because the point I'm wanting to make, we've already read in verse 10, when the horses or the angels on the horses were identified, what did he say that they had been doing? What had the Lord sent them to do? To patrol the earth. Now, when you see a police car driving around on patrol, you feel good about that unless you're into something you shouldn't be into. Uh, you know, we, we have them patrol through here all the time, and I welcome them to come through. I like for them to, to be present because that makes me feel safe. That word patrol connotes protection, guardianship. And there's a lot to take out of this text, but that's all we're looking at it for tonight is just to see that. Now, that brings us to the classic text on guardian angels, Matthew chapter 18. So let's turn over to the New Testament. We've talked about the terms watchers, seraphim, cherubim. We've noted that the Lord, angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Psalm 34, verse 7. We saw this obscure vision of Zechariah's where the angels patrol the earth. Now let's go to the one New Testament passage we have, Matthew 18. I'll get to verse 10 in a moment, but let's get the context starting with verse 1. The disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the disciples at this time were childish, but they weren't childlike. Uh, they were childish in that they were arguing over who was the greatest. I mean, that's very immature, right? And I'm sure J Jesus, as patient as he was, grew weary of this argument they seemed to always be having, vying for position among what should be a servant kingdom. And so to really get through to him, them, he used an object lesson of a child. And he said, you need to become like this. This child is not trying to be the greatest. This is... Humility embodied in this person here. Uh, on other occasions, they would try to drive the children away, and he would say, let the children come to me. And so Jesus always welcomed the children. He didn't see them as a nuisance. He, he used them as an example. Now, it's in that vein that we come to verse 10, where he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And so that's the proof text that people will use for the idea of guardian angels that we discussed at the beginning of this point. Uh, a personal angel assigned to each individual. Now, we've already talked about the problems with that, just using common sense. 
But let's ask the question, does this passage or any other teach that a personal angel is assigned to you? I don't see it here. I see that there are angels in the plural who are interested in children. There's nothing said here that they will dive in front of a moving car or stop a disease from afflicting them. We know that harm comes to innocent children. But it says, their angels see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Think about those passages like Deuteronomy, um, Deuteronomy, Psalm 82, Psalm 89 that talks about the divine counsel. Uh, think about Revelation chapter 5 where you see angelic and celestial beings all around the throne of God. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I've been in heaven. I've seen what's up there. You're impressed by angels. Let me tell you something. The angels are friends of these children. The angels care about these children. And they're very protective of these children. And they are in the presence of my Father. They are watching you. And they are letting my Father know when you mistreat them. One of my professors at college has put it this way, and this is the way I've always explained Matthew 18, 10. He says... Jesus is simply saying children have friends in high places. And that's basically the point. He's not setting up angelology on guardian angels. You can't build a whole idea out of this, this comment that was meant to tell people that children are special. But that doesn't mean angels don't have a protective role, a guardian role of some kind, an interest in us. But here's, here's what we need to know practically. When it comes to the desire for protection, it's best to trust God and place our destiny in His hands, not the angels. Going back to Psalm 34, 7, or I'm sorry, Psalm 91, 11, and 12, He will give His angels charge concerning you. So the Father, He gives the orders, and the angels do His bidding. And so when you pray, don't pray for an angel. Pray to God for help. Pray to God for deliverance. That's what the Bible instructs us to do. If he uses angels in his mysterious providential way to, to help us, only he knows and only the angels know how that works. We don't know. We haven't been given that information. But practically speaking, we know how to get the help. That's through prayer to the Father. Right. I haven't let you do any talking or asking any questions. I can pause right here if anybody has any thoughts on this or anything we've said so far. Nothing? Okay. Well, let's get to the next subject. We're, we're I'm sorry, did somebody have one? Bob? That's right. Yeah, it's like the Russian cosmonaut that I talked about in one of my sermons recently. When uh, he was the first man in space, he said, I went to outer space and I looked and I looked and I looked and I didn't see God. And we think, oh, how foolish is that? But sometimes we get it in our minds that it, it works like that. If we go far enough up into the material space-time world in the cosmos... We'll get to heaven. We just haven't got that far yet. Uh, this isn't uh, traveling in outer space. The spiritual dimension is right here. 
I think Bob's right. And I think about Paul's statement in Acts 17. He's not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. Uh, so that's a good point. And it's, it's always good to remember that when we're talking about God's presence, when we're talking about these angels. Yeah, Bill. I don't have that one. Blazer. Oh, he's brilliant then. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I think, you know, I'll jump ahead a little to, to bounce off of what you just said. Uh, one of the points I was going to make is that they, they're messengers, right? So they have helped us in the past by giving us God's word, messengers, uh, mediating the old covenant, for example. We went through several passages on that. But God's word has been given to us in its perfect form now. And uh, you, Brother Blazer, I think that was his name, Blazer, he, he mentions Galatians 1. If anybody brings a, a different gospel, another gospel that I bring to him, even if it's an angel from heaven, let him be accursed. So uh, what Bill read is exactly right. The message has been brought, and it's in the Word of God. But this was the point I was going to make when I got to that, is that makes this no less wonderful. You know, this is still... The word mediated by angels, this is still the word that angels have been involved in bringing to us. Uh, just because it's been finished for 2,000 years, that shouldn't make it any less wonderful in our eyes or precious. Uh, God finished the work when he needed it to be finished, and the angels are not supposed to bring us anything new, but this is still a wonderful thing that they've done for us. Uh, as agents of revelation here and there. And so that, that ties in well with one, one of the points I was making on how they relate to us. They've been messengers to us. Uh, let's talk about prayer a little bit. There's a couple of examples. I'll go through this quickly because I want to get to my last point. <clears throat> but um, we've talked about Daniel 9 already, so I'm not going to spend time on that one. But I'll just remind you, when we were talking about Gabriel we were discussing the announcement to Joseph and Mary about Jesus' birth. We mentioned Gabriel, and we went back to look at Daniel 9, because Gabriel is who talked with, with Daniel. He came as an answer to Daniel's prayer. And it says, in uh, most translations, he came in swift flight. So it shows God's eagerness to answer our prayers. The other passage is the one we looked at a while ago in Acts chapter 12. And if you go back, uh, I'll mention this quickly because I want to get to 
as I said, that last point. But in Acts chapter 12, uh, Peter has been in prison. Uh, his life is on the line. James has already been killed. And the church is grief-stricken over James's death. Here comes Peter now. Same thing's going to happen to him. So they're praying fervently at Mary's house. Mary is the mother of John Mark. They're in the city of Jerusalem. And uh, God answers their prayer through this angel. He sends an angel who strikes Peter on the side and uh, wakes him up, says, Get up quickly. This is verse 8. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know what was being done by the angel. He did not that... I'm sorry. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real but thought he was seeing a vision. I don't know what that was like for Peter, but he wound up at Mary's house. And I'll just tell the rest of it. You know, he knocked on the door. The little girl comes. She recognizes his voice. She runs and tells everybody who's been praying. And this strikes me because these people are so much like we are. They're praying for something, and God has answered their prayer, and now they're arguing about it. You know, do we rely on prayer? You know, God answers prayer providentially. I'm not talking about supernatural miracles here, but he orchestrates this world. He is in charge of this world. He's sovereign over the natural laws. And he answers prayer. Do we pray as if we believe he is listening and that he can answer prayer? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, right? James 5, 17. We need to believe that. Now let me go to the last thing. I want to talk about this real quick. Uh, that was the messages that we talked about. At death. So when Lazarus died, Jesus said that he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And I, I just think that's a beautiful passage, and it's just a little side note that he makes. The only other passage I could think of that was similar to that is in Revelation 3, 5, which says that after we inherit our salvation, or at Judgment Day, rather, Jesus will confess our name before his Father and before the angels. So they're involved in some way. They're with us in some way at death. I remember a story that Tom Holland told about a man that he was visiting who was on his deathbed. And uh, he heard the man mumbling something, and he, he leaned in to hear what he was saying, and the man was saying, Oh, come, angel band. He was saying that over and over again. And somebody else was in the room. He said, What's he saying? And Brother Holland said, He's, he's calling for the angels to come and get him. And it, we don't sing this song much, but uh, I've been inspired by Jimmy to to read some lyrics to some songs. So uh, here is O Come Angel Band. I think it's a good way to end our class tonight as we think about how the angels minister for us. My latest sun is sinking fast. My race is nearly run. My strongest trials now are past. My triumph hath begun. I've almost gained my heavenly home. My spirit loudly sings. The holy ones, behold, they come. I hear the noise of wings. Oh, come, angel band, 
Come and around me stand. Oh, bear me away on your snow-white wings to my immortal home. Bear me away on your snow-white wings to my immortal home. I think that's a good place to stop. Next week, I plan to talk about the divine council. I put that off till the end just to make sure we get through uh, some of these other studies. So I hope you look forward to that, the conclusion of uh, our class on angels, and appreciate everybody being out tonight for this class.